0: So um, as a a last uh, word for you all, I wanted to let you know if you don't know already that I'm preparing to retire. I've been director of the museum for 23 years and I'm ready to pass the baton. But I want to thank all of you so much for your support. It's been so important to us and you can see how popular the museum's programs are and it's partly because of your support. So thank you and here's Kira. Thank you again, Amy, for for all of the support for this program, Science Cafes, and many, many other programs over the years. Um, Amy hired me about 24 years ago, 23, yeah, she was assistant director at that time. Um, In any case, um, tonight we have a very, very special program, and I see that it's had a big draw, so I will get right to it. For those of you who are new to the Science Cafe format, uh, we have about a half hour of presentations at the beginning from our distinguished guests. And then we move to a discussion period at your tables where you can talk amongst yourself. There are some ringers in the audience, some table hosts who have some knowledge already on this subject. Can you raise your hand, Miguel? And Okay, yeah, perfect. Thank you. Um, They have name tags on to help you identify them. Um, And then we will come back together for the last half hour for a group discussion. Um, And finally, there are little blue evaluations on the table, and please fill those out at the end before you leave and give me ideas for future topics. um, Because even though Amy is retiring, this program is going to go on. Uh, So with that I will introduce our guests. We have two wonderful guests, and they both do extreme science. Um, Bjorn Penning, Professor Penning's research is focused on the search for dark matter. His group is deeply involved in the construction, operation, and analysis of the Lux Zeppelin experiment that is located one mile underground in a former gold mine in South Dakota. Uh, They just set the world's most sensitive uh, constraints on dark matter. And Professor Penning is further designing a novel low-mass dark matter detector using superfluid helium. Wow. He works with theorists on new models for dark matter. And in the past, Penning also worked on collider physics. In particular, the 27-kilometer-long LHC Collider in Geneva. I've heard of it, but I've never been there. Sounds fun. Um, and the matter antimatter collider that was hosted at Fermilab near Chicago. So uh, I'm also going to introduce Marcela Salos Santos. Professor Sa- Salos Santos' research focuses on uncovering the nature of the accelerated expansion of the cosmos. So, big stuff. Uh, She contributed to the construction of the Dark Energy Camera, one of the largest telescope cameras in the world, which she now employs to search for gravitational wave-emitting collisions of neutron stars and black holes. The program aims to establish gravitational waves as a completely novel method to study cosmic acceleration. It has been successful in detecting the first neutron star collision ever observed, a discovery heralded as the science breakthrough of the year in 2017. Wow! She was awarded the prestigious 2023 APS Fellowship, 2021 Cottrell Scholar Award, and 2019 Sloan Research Fellowship, and while preparing for many more discoveries on the gravitational waves front. She also contributes to the effort of measuring the cosmic acceleration using traditional methods, such as galaxy clusters and gravitational lensing. Together, traditional and novel methods blaze a trail for a major leap in our understanding of the universe. And her research has been featured in the PBS docu- documentary series Nova, Nova Wonders and has been covered by major news outlets worldwide. Please welcome Bjorn and Marcella. So, good
1: evening, and uh, thank you for the uh, invitation, thank you for the nice introduction, and I'm actually, I'm, I'm really very <laughs> blown away about the great attendance. I, I'm also, I'm really happy to see, I see colleagues from the physics department here, I see students that I'm teaching, I'm sorry guys, <laughs> I'm teaching, and now you have to listen to me again. And, uh, yeah, colleagues in the department other than Marcelle, And I also see a lot of friends and neighbors. So that's really great. (laughs) So I'm going to get properly heckled today. So that's good. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to talk to you about uh, the hunt for dark matter today. Um, If you can go to the next slide. What you see here is a very abbreviated version of the last 2,000 years of fundamental science, right? We went from very simple models. Everything is made out of earth, water, wind, and fire to an understanding of that actually everything is made out of atoms. Already the Greek talk of atomos, right? And then actually the structure of the atom. And just in the last 100 years, or actually even a bit less, we really understand everything that we know, everything that we can probe. And And what we see here, all the fundamental particles on the outside, you have all the particles that make up stuff, the middle ring, shows all the forces, except of gravity. And in the very middle, you have the Higgs boson that was discovered in 2012 with very large contributions by University of Michigan. And so with this, we have found everything. We're done, we call it a day, right? Nope. <laughs> Next slide, please. Unfortunately, just around you know 1998, or late 90s, we realized two things. That all of those 2,000 years of work it's just 5% of the energy content of the universe. Another like 27, 30%, like five times as much as regular matter, as dark matter, as I'm going to talk about now. And another 70% is actually dark energy, but Marcella is going to talk about. So, I mean, I luckily got tenure recently, so It's nice, but this is job security by itself as a physicist, <laughs> right? So there's a lot to do. So we know that most of the actual matter in the universe is dark matter, and there's a very, very good chance that dark matter is with us in the room right now. But we just haven't identified it yet. So next slide, please. So there are plenty plenty of observations about what dark matter, uh, how how we can see dark matter. Dark matter is the, we can see it in the very early universe when the universe froze out, became transparent shortly after the Big Bang. We see the ripples of dark matter there. We see dark matter in the present universe. We see it in the orbital mechanics of galaxies. Stars further out, move faster than they should be because they're being dragged by dark matter. But the local density is actually very small. The local density is, is about, in, in scientific terms, about half of a proton per even less, 0.4 GeV per cube meter. So it's like half a proton per cube meter. It's a tiny amount of mass. So in the entire world, this is the other dark matter. On the entire planet, the amount of dark matter is about five pints, right? (laughs) The entire dark matter in the solar system corresponds to a small moon. But you see already from five pints to a small moon. Even a small moon is big, right? Because the universe is so big and so empty. And everything that's empty is being filled, like like our atoms are mostly empty, space, right? So with dark matter, what we know today, and really from observations, going all the way back to the early universe, and today, things that we see locally, if you call our galaxy local, locally, to a, in, and then also the growth of galaxy, the structure of the universe, the super clusters, everything can only be explained with dark matter. And we know that dark matter is essentially like a giant bath, like a dark matter Or halo, we call it a halo surrounding our galaxy. And even this artistic rendering is not correct in the sense that it's much, much bigger. So galaxies are 10 times larger than they appear to us to the visible eye because of the dark matter, but we cannot see it; it's invisible. That's why we call it dark. So next slide, please. And it's not like just some esoteric thing that we do to get grant funding or so, but there's actually real implication. I mentioned that. At the very early universe, we see the ripples of the dark matter, and what we see here is a rendering of... If we, we look at this, what we call the surface flask scatter, essentially at the last part of the Big Bang that we can see, we see tiny fluctuations, like ripples in a pond when you throw in, throw in uh, a stone. These are ripples in space-time. And where there are these ripples, there's more gravity. And then we see how then, over the eons, this gravity, this gravitational wells attracted first hydrogen, hydrogen formed the first stars, the first stars burned, blew up, created more stars, created the heavier elements that we are made of, right? And then in eventually formed modern galaxies and planets and everything. And this has all has been seeded by dark matter at the beginning of time. So it's truly important for our existence. So next slide, please. So. I could speak about this for an hour, what we know, what we don't know, but but to summarize it, what we know it, it's a very, very rare process. Dark matter, a billion dark matter particles could stream stream through us right now and we wouldn't feel any interaction except of maybe once in a while. Similar like neutrinos, you might have heard about neutrinos, and neutrinos statistically can pass through a light year of lead, but once a while one will get caught, so we need Ultra-sensitive detectors, and because we have some idea about the density of dark matter and we have some idea about, the, from this orbital mechanics, how fast dark matter is, we know that the energy signatures are very faint. So we have to build detectors that are the world's most sensitive detectors, and at the same time, being the world sensitive, we shouldn't be distracted by all the natural radiation around us. So we do this by essentially building in very, very deep underground. So next slide, please. Well, this is my, ex- uh, my uh, experiment. We call it the LZ, Deluxe Zeppelin experiment. And we built this experiment one mile underground in the beautiful Black Hills. Who of you knows the movie Dancing with Wolves? I love it being in the audience about my age. Finally, I'm not the only one. If the students, it never works out. Sorry, guys. That's your fault. But they never look at me. But I make my jokes. They're like, what? So <laughs> so, just, it has been filmed there, just around the corner there. So it's a beautiful area. I love going there. And one mile underground in a former gold mine, we built this experiment. Why do we so deep underground? Because some of the highest radiation, higher than even the radiation we can create at the Large Hadron Collider, comes from cosmic rays. And the cosmic rays are constantly raining upon us. Right now, you stretch your hand out, you get one muon per second going through your hand. And by going one mile underground, we can get away, I indicated with those lines, we get away from the muons, at least from most of them. Only one in a billion will make it all the way down there. And in addition, we built the entire experiment out of the cleanest, with clean, I mean, our radioactively cleanest material as possible. As you know, when you buy your house, you you check it out for radon. Right, Radion is everywhere. Radio is radioactive. Every heavy metal has been baked in a supernova or neutron star merger. Marcel is going to talk about this. So there's trace reactivity, and we source our material particularly for radio purity. Next slide, please. So going underground, this is a very uh, historic place, for good and bad reasons. Historic in terms of the U.S. history, historic in terms of uh, Native Americans, but also for science because the famous Ray Davis experiment has been uh, has been set in the very cavern of our experiment and a piece of that experiment is actually a small piece on exhibition in, in, in the science museum right now together with a much bigger exhibition we come to this and you see me here on the lower right side this was just before I became father so I looked much younger and much <laughs> not happier but much younger <laughs> so but yeah and when you go underground you're, you're like you know you you're like a, dressed up like a miner. It's not a Halloween costume. It's that's a mine, right, where they're actually doing excavations, etc. So next slide, please. This experiment consists of two parts. The primary dark matter target and then an outer veto detector. Because at some point you cannot build, you cannot get material which is perfectly clean. And even if you're perfectly clean, Once in a while, a muon will make it through, or once in a while, a muon will manage to, to penetrate all the way one mile deep and kick out a neutron and create radiation. So we built a second detector, an outer detector, which is there to detect everything from the outside because dark matter is so rarely interacting, you would expect it only once. And if we see something in the inside and in the outside, we reject it. This is one way we call it active background control. And everything on the outer detector, we have a big footprint in both, but particularly in building, everything on the outer detector essentially has been built by uh, here, my group here at U-Michigan. Next slide, please. In terms of, I want to give you some idea about the radio-purity. Bananas, they uh, contain potassium, and potassium is radioactive. So they about 15 becquerels, so 15 radioactive decays per second of a banana. That's not a lot. It it takes a huge amount of bananas to actually measure this with regular detectors. Our target purity that we have is what we call two micro becquerel per kilogram. This corresponds to one over three-quarters of a million bananas. This is how clean we are in (laughs) banana-equivalent units. And. When we built this experiment in the clean room, we, we did so much cleaning all the time, so much. I'm really traumatized. On the other side, sharing houses in, in the Black Hills in the winter with, with colleagues and friends that are all just cleaning all the time. Even in a, in a flat chair, it's very clean, so that's a good thing. <laughs> so next slide, please. So just a few pictures of the detector. Of course, now it's running. This is the central dark matter detector. We call it a time projection chamber. Um, this is a technology in which we are able to distinguish different types of radiation based on these noble liquids, a uh, liquid xenon. And it's actually, because it's ultra clean and ultra pure, we see here on the, on the right, we see uh, some of the components, which are light sensors, which looks like an insect. Eyes. It's a photomultiplier tubes. And in, in real life, it's really beautiful and big and clean. But this entire thing is submerged in liquid xenon. Next slide, please. Four years ago, we we built this over several years on the surface in the clean room, cleaner than any surgical theater, cleaner than most chip industry even uses. Then we hung it on beneath uh, the cage on the over one mile drop. There you have like years of your life, millions of dollars hanging on a cable a mile down. We brought it down in the drive and shafts. We pulled it out, see in the upper right, and then on the lo- lower right, we pulled it into the final hall. And this shows you what actually sets the final dimension of the experiment. It's like, what's the biggest we could, got, we, we could get through without having to excavate more? And actually, this the gentleman at the very right side is also a former U Michigan graduate student who is one of the leading persons at the experiments. He's now at Berkeley. So next slide, please. This is then the experiment being put into the cryostat with Charles, one of our engineers. Next slide, please. Then we built this outer detector and I love this picture because this, except of the tanks in the middle, everything here, my group built. And this is the outer detector which then gets rid of all of the backgrounds and really manage it enables us to get quite a bit more clean. Next slide, please. So how does this look like? If we, have inter- if we can click on this, then we should be running. So we see how data taking l- looks like once it runs. Anyway, we see here in different colors, i started explaining it, we see a different sub including the one we built in the TPC where we, where we are leading the calibration. And these little spikes, when, when you zoom into them, they have a lot of structure in them. And the structure, the structure of different signals allows us to distinguish, allows us to distinguish what type of signal it is and then allows us eventually to say we are, we are like rejecting some of the backgrounds and what looks like dark matter. It's, if we put this all together, and we just published this result a few months ago, and we so far have published only 60 days. We have 280 days, about more, and don't tell the competition. There days more of data than they can. And this is our, what we call the limit plot. It's too technical to explain, but essentially, this is the possible dark matter mass. On the left is the cross-section. It means how small, how faint is the signature we're probing. And everything above the line is excluded. So what matters is? The number that we said is if a hydrogen atom would be the size of the sun then we would be able to see something as small or faint or light as a hydrogen atom. So this presently is the world's most sensitive experiment and the world's most cleanest place in terms of radioactivity or maybe, maybe even the universe is one because I don't know any aliens but they might have something much better. Okay, next slide please. We can do much more having such an ultra-precise detector. You can do many, many more things. For example, instead of only looking for dark matter, the cosmic rays that manage to penetrate one mile of rock are very interesting by itself. And one of my, pe- of my peer students is working on that. We're having novel types of dark matter searches. Have, we can look for very interesting nuclear physics. Miguel is actually working on something like this, looking for very rare decay, which might explain the matter antimatter symmetry, not double beta decay in uh, in these detectors. We can do supernova physics multi messenger astronomy. you can hear more about this, and a whole bunch of very very interesting things. Next slide, please, and coming to an end. One thing I want to point out and also say thank you to Amy, Amy helped organizing a wonderful art exhibition with a little bit of dark matter attached where an artist, Professor Gina Gibson from the from that area up there at the Black uh, Black Hill State University, brought art here. And if you go to the Science Museum, I, I think it's on display for another about two months or so, then in the exhibition space you see one room about the experiment with pictures and and, and part of the equipment and things like that. And and two much bigger rooms and much more interesting with the art that uses parts of different scientific equipment, etc., etc., for this type of science, uh, for, the, for, the, for the art. So really interesting to see. So final slide, please. OK, so much about dark matter. And I think I took too much time. But now, Marcella will take over and tell you about dark energy, which is much more than even dark matter. Thank you so much.
2: All right, thank you everyone and uh, thank you for coming. All right, so we are going to talk about the largest part of the pie, right? The cosmic pie um, that uh, we use to describe the components of the universe today. Maybe I should say here for, for this. Um, so dark energy is a fascinating problem. It is everywhere. It, is, it really dominates the universe today by a large margin. It will determine the fate of our universe in the future, and yet we really have no idea what it is. So um, one thing that I would like to um, highlight on this background image that I'm showing here is not only for your enjoyment, it is actually an example of the types of data sets that we use to study dark energy. So what you're seeing here are galaxies, and the idea here for the non-astronomers in the room is you can imagine something like this, is if each of you brilliant people uh, considers yourself a star, the collective of people around a table would be, say, a galaxy, right? So in the case of our own galaxy, for example, we have billions or tens of billions of stars in it, okay? And so what we're looking at here, the fuzzy blobs that you see, are galaxies about the size or, you know, some of them even bigger than our own. Our galaxy is very average size, uh, to be honest. And um, a few of the um, sharp, point like dots, those are stars that are in the foreground. So those are stars in our own galaxy that are on the way between us and uh, those distant ones. Okay. Uh, the equivalent here will be, you know, your the neighbor uh, star on the same table versus a colleague at the other side of the room. Okay. Most of the time, we cannot resolve individual stars in faraway galaxies. We see the fuzzy blob there. But we can infer uh, how big they are and a number of physical properties by studying them and analyzing those images in great detail. Now, what we are seeing here is the luminous matter. All of this light that we are seeing is made out of the 5% of the pie, okay? So most of it is really, uh, is really dark. And our challenge is try to infer what is the nature of um, dark energy, something that we don't see, uh, using uh, observables that are made out of only uh, a small fraction, four or 5% of the total. That is the, uh, the idea. So let's go to the next slide and try to uh, clear our jargon here. Because oftentimes people say like, dark matter, dark energy, dark, black holes and so on, what's the difference, right? And why why do I care? So the main difference to um, keep in mind, at least for the purpose of tonight's discussion, is that um, dark matter, behaves other than it is dark so dark here is a, a, a term that you could replace in your mind with invisible. So dark matter will be just like regular matter but invisible. It doesn't show up in that image that I sh- that I showed to you before. but it behaves like matter just like everything else, attracts gravity, etc, and forms clumps and so on. okay? Dark energy is another beast. Dark energy is something that is in the empty space where matter is not, right? So I think the example, if we stretch out our analogy of of our uh, galaxies here in the room, the idea would be the following. In this empty space between one table and another, most of the time in classical physics, we would imagine, oh, it's just vacuum. There's nothing there. It's just empty. Okay. In this context here, we are saying that it's it's not really empty. That empty space, there's some energy associated with it and that energy makes this space expand. What that would mean in this scenario, if this would be true, it would be that you people would be sitting here at this corner of the room and would see uh, people at the other side of the room appear to be becoming further and further away from them, right? But not because they are just, you know, their chairs like this, but actually because space time is expanding as, you know, uh, as time progresses. And what is causing this expansion? What's the energy that is powering that uh, expansion? That is um, dark energy, okay? So, okay, now that we have our terminology straight, uh, let's go to the next slide. All right, so how do we study something we don't see? As I said, we have to build observables based on the stuff that we do see, and one of them is uh, really measuring the distances and what we call the recession velocity. So, how quickly does a person who's in the other side of the room appear to be, you know, uh, receding from me? Uh, will tell me how fast the universe is expanding or not. Right. So that is not no topic number one over there. Uh, number two is to measure the rate of growth. So Matter tends to attract each other through gravity, and pretty much like people, right? Somebody else comes here in the room, it's like, oh, there's a free seat here, so I'm going to uh, get and grow this cluster of matter over here and that one over there and so on. That's usually how we behave, right? So same thing is happening here, but at the same time, these distances are becoming bigger and bigger. If I get here into the room and suddenly the entire room is one kilometer, you know, wide, then I am m- less likely to gravitate to that table at the end of the room than I would be otherwise, right? So the rate of growth is the second observable that we can, um, we can use. For the topic of today, I think we are going to focus in the interest of time only on the first one, which is a measure uh, of the expansion history. So the illustration here shows in the y-axis uh, what would be distance. And the uh, the x-axis is uh, time, where in the corner here, we have uh, time equals zero, Big Bang, when uh, the universe was very small and very compact. And uh, to the right, you have the universe today, and even to the future. The vertical thin line over there shows where we would be today. So the shape of this line is telling us the following, that today, closer to today and beyond, we are in this accelerated, phase of the expansion of the universe. It's not only expanding, but it's becoming faster and faster. Um, it's not easy to do this with conventional physics, but uh, the data tells us that this is what's happening. And um, before that, uh, things were more normal in the sense that uh, the universe was dominated by matter, dark matter. And uh, so the expansion was you know, uh, still happening, but not so fast. Uh, So the third thing that we do in this field is check for consistency. We don't have a perfect observable that allow us to probe the entire universe from the the first instance to today. We have, for example, the galaxies, but the first galaxies in our universe were formed only something like, I don't know, five billion years ago, right? So what that means is uh, we don't have an easy way to do observations that go beyond that with galaxies. We need other probes, other observables. We have some observations from the early universe. We have something called the gravitational wave, uh, the cosmic microwave background. and um, But that is uh, like a snapshot in the very early universe in the first billion years. What we want is if things are correct, we want a consistent picture, a consistent model that describes the entire universe over the entire thri- 13 billion years of its history. Uh, we're getting there, but, uh, you know, not quite yet. Um, so those are the, the three things to keep in mind. Measuring things like the expansion history and the growth and comparing measurements from different observables in a way that you're convinced that you are getting the right answer both ways, okay? So next slide, please. Um, tensions. So what happens when things seem not to uh, follow, you know, the model that you have in mind? So here the example is uh, of this cartoon made by um, um, fantastic collaborator of mine in the Dark Energy Survey. Um, She produces these cartoons called The Dark Bites. And um, so the idea over there, if you squint a little bit, is that say you have a model for what dark energy is. In this case, the model is a duck. Um, and uh, you're going to collect data, for example, from the galaxies and from some nearby stars, etc. And this will be, imagine a scenario where you've never seen a duck before, but you were, I don't know, mailed pictures, some pictures of uh, the nose, some pictures of the foot. You will look and you'll say like, oh, this looks like a duck, right? So the, my mental model and the data are consistent with each other. Looks like we are on the right track. Now. What is happening right now is that we have some data sets that seem to be inconsistent with that. And that seemed to indicate that our simplest model for dark energy, this model I described, like energy from the vacuum and, you know, let's live with that. That seems to be too naive and incomplete. We may need something more complex and more, um, you know, sophisticated to explain uh, what dark energy actually is. I don't have the solution. We are not going to uh, answer that today. But uh, you, you can see, I think, uh, have an idea of the magnitude of the challenge. All right, so let's go to the next slide and talk a little bit about Einstein and the theory of general relativity. So what um, this is slide here is to try to introduce the concept. So without any math or anything, I think one way um, I like to summarize what is the key concept behind the theory of general relativity of Einstein is uh, the idea that space tells matter how to move. Matter tells space how to curve. So what you're seeing here is that in a scenario like that, where you have, um, you know, the tiny little test masses um, moving in a space that is clearly curved, you can see that their trajectory there is going to be determined by what is the curvature of that, you know, uh, surface that they're they moving in, moving in, right? And um, what happens in the context of general relativity is that uh, what you would imagine is that if you have a very massive object in the center, the mass of that object would cause that curvature. That's the part of the theory that tells you that uh, matter tells the space how to curve. And then uh, the little pro particles are going to uh, move according to, uh, you know, what is the geometry of space, right? So that's your Einstein's general relativity 101 primer. All right, so uh, we can see that here with, uh, you know, the, this, uh, this example. Next I think we can have a look of what happens if the second or third in this case we have many small objects that are subject to move under the influence of the curvature of a much more massive object that is at the center there. Now let's go to the next slide and try to visualize what will happen. And this one is not going to be a video, but you you can you use your imagination. Imagine the following. So on the left here, um, the <coughs> I have a, an example of the sun in our Earth system. We can imagine that our Earth, orbiting the sun, is following the path of the curved space-time because the sun is very massive and creates a curved space-time there for uh, for us to uh, to travel upon. Now, if instead of a system with very uh, different masses like that, we had a system with two. Um, for example, neutron stars with masses similar to each other, then the the, uh, the curvature will be perturbed by not only one object, but both of them, and they will combine with each other. So more than that, when they are orbiting each other, this movement will be periodic. And so what you're going to have is uh, something that are perturbations in space-time that are periodic. So. This is a typical signature of waves. So those are the gravitational waves that have become uh, a topic of, uh, you know, so much uh, excitement in the world of physics in this uh, past, you know, decade or so. So gravitational waves are this, and you can see that it could be any massive object, any pair of massive objects orbiting each other will be producing gravitational waves. Um, but of course that these objects have to be very massive for those gravitational waves to be appreciable. Now. Okay, so these waves are there, they exist. How do we detect them here on Earth, right? So the next slide should show uh, what type of antenna we need. What type of antenna do we need to detect them? Uh, This example is one of the two um, antennas from the LIGO uh, system. And the idea here is the following. As the waves travel through space and time, what do they do? they make deformations in space. So those deformations means that if I had something that have a standard length, my arm here, uh, and gravitational waves are going through me, what will happen is that the distance between uh, the tip of my hand and my, my body is going to change according to, according to the amplitude of the waves that are traveling through me, okay? Now, this amplitude change is very small, so you better have a very long arm in order to get something appreciable. And that is the idea with the LIGO detectors that have four kilometer arms, right? And um, it's a very, very sophisticated marvel of engineering uh, that um, I think it's uh, it's really exciting and fascinating. All right, so these detectors, uh, there has been an investment by the community over decades to make them sensitive enough to gravitational waves at cosmic distances, you know. Uh, But only in 2015 uh, that limit was achieved, and so right now these detectors are operating and detecting signals from merging neutron stars, merging black holes every day or every week basically. So let's go to the next slide. in my case, so gravitational waves are exciting and fun on their own. And I think that even if you're not interested in dark energy, you, you know, you're probably excited ab- about them anyway. But let's say that we are interested in dark energy specifically, then so what? You detected these gravitational waves. How do they help me with my problem, right? The idea here is that there is a very, very neat property of gravitational waves, which is uh, the shape of the waveform that is captured in your detector, that specific pattern of the wiggles that are uh, drawn here in this cartoon, they are characteristic of the masses of the two objects involved. So if you analyze that well, you can recover what are the masses. And if you know the masses, you know the amplitude. I said it before, that you have to have objects that are very massive to generate waves that are you know, of high enough amplitude to be detected or loud enough in the jargon that people use in the field. Um, so it's the same here. And you can reconstruct the masses. And with that, you know what's the intrinsic amplitude. You compare with the amplitude in your detector, which is my L-shaped um, air, air, uh, detector there cartoon. And voila, you have the distances. And as I said, we want to measure distance as a function of uh, recession velocity over time so that we can map out the history of expansion of the universe. So this is a very clean, assuming only general relativity, it is a very clean way to detect distances to objects far away. I tell you, as an astronomer, detecting distance to cosmic objects is not trivial. It's not an easy task. Uh, you can imagine, for example. Yeah, I, I think I'll save that for questions and discussion later. We can we can talk about how 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 difficult that is uh, later on. But you can see how uh, how we can use this gravitational wave event for distances, and this is precious and something that we really want to do. So uh, very good. So we are here. We are in a in position to make these detections because these gravitational wave experiments are there. But. I told you before, we need two things to make that graph. We need distances on the y-axis and the vertical axis, but we also need this recession velocity. How do we get that? Well, that's where the traditional astronomers come in. Uh, Next slide will uh, uh, show (coughs) the type of instrument that we use. So we want now to look at the region in the sky where the signal came from, identify the galaxy, the little bright spot where it came from, and with that, we can de- we can determine what's the recession velocity relative to us of that object. To do that, we use traditional telescopes. In particular, this is one example uh, of um, a project called the Dark Energy Survey. Uh, the camera that's there on the uh, lower uh, right side, it was built in 2012 and installed on the telescope in Chile. So you see there the big uh, insert is uh, the actual telescope. The mirror of the telescope is four meter uh, wide in diameter, and that is installed inside of the Blanco telescope um, in Chile. We tend to go to locations that have dark sky, very good in clean atmosphere to do this type of, of, of measurement. So this is a, an awesome instrument because it can scan large areas of the sky very quickly, and so we can uh, quickly identify what the light corresponding to the object so that we know which galaxy it came from. So if you go to the next slide. Uh, okay, this is my uh, cartoon illustration of this type of um, you know new field of, su- subfield of science that we are doing here. We call it multi-messenger physics or multi-messenger science. What the, the multi-messenger here refers to the fact that you combine information that you get from light, from traditional telescopes, with uh, information that you get from gravitational waves. Um, and uh, the analogy with, Uh, gravitational waves being analogous to sound comes into play uh, here. So imagine you are close to a busy intersection and so on if you hear a car crash. By the sound of it, you already can tell a few things. You can know when it happened. You can know more or less that it happened perhaps at this intersection, not that other one over there. Uh, And pretty much that's it, right? And you don't have that much detail. But if you go outside and you around and have a look, then you can tell, oh, maybe it was just a fender bender, no, no this looks serious, I should call 911. And um, that this is the idea, that combining information from both things allows us to know more than we would uh, otherwise. All right, so for the job here, the right tools uh, that we have available include um, the gravitational wave detectors, This is just an artistic impression telling you how, how do we do this in practice. The idea is that the gravitational wave antennas are, are up and running. And when a merger or a collision of two neutron stars occur, that collision will generate gravitational waves that are loud enough to be above the threshold for these antennas to hear. The LIGO collaboration quickly produces their analysis and says like, oh, we have something. It's over there. And um, it has approximately this distance. and go for it they just create literally a treasure map right like a map in the sky and 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 that's it and that map is distributed publicly to the community all of you if you want you can sign up and watch what was the last event that lego saw yesterday or or last week you will also see that those maps are very large areas in the sky and i think that that it's easy to understand with the analogy with sound uh, we can tell by the sound of things that, uh, you know, there's a source maybe at this side of the room versus that side of the room. But it, it's hard to pinpoint if you don't, you know, turn your head and look. So it's, it's similar here. The triangulation is relatively poor, especially with only uh, two or three antennas uh, working at once at, at a given time. Okay, so what we do with this information, as soon as we receive the trigger signal, um, and that will be minutes, maybe a couple of hours after the merger has happened and the processing uh, by LIGO has occurred, we have our own observing plan. And uh, as I can tell you all about the, I know the struggles of getting to uh, be ready on time because the bright source corresponding to that event is short lived. And uh, it will be the equivalent of saying, OK, again, if each table here is a galaxy, etc.," a merger like that will be somebody saying cheers at a table somewhere over there. If you don't look quickly enough, it's over, and you, you know, missed it, and, and you cannot tell anymore if it was this table or that table anymore, right? Same idea. So we have to look quickly, and we have to analyze the images quickly as well to make sure that, oh, really, we had a source that went bright uh, in that galaxy. That's the one we are looking for and not any of the other how 300 million, literally galaxies that we have, right? So that's what we do with our telescope. It's on the the other side. All right. So let's see how well do we do this, right? So next slide. We've been doing this for a while. I told you that LIGO started operating with good sensitivity since 2015. We have been attempting to do discoveries of you know the sources. Uh, since then, these are three examples of how we do that. So you see there are the sky maps, and we cover the sky maps with our camera. The red hexagon shapes are corresponding to the footprint of our camera in the sky. So you can see that even with a large camera as we have uh, here, we have need 20, sometimes 100 spo- uh, shots to cover the entire area. It's not trivial. And we get many candidates in that area, and sifting through them is a uh, fun and exciting night uh, that we have with all of that. All right, next slide will show you the one success story that we have. Uh so this is an event known as GW170817. In this field we are very very um, non-creative with naming things. So GW for gravitational waves and 170817 is when it happened. Uh, uh August 17th, 2017. And um you can see here that uh, our team was uh Probably not paying much attention to what we were writing on our emails, or not thinking that those would become, you know, shown in a cafe at some point. But I thought it was um, uh, relevant to show it here. We were one of the first teams to make the discovery of the bright counterpart of that murder event in 2017, and you can see they are, uh, you know, marked with the crosshairs. Ha- uh, that was at the outskirts of a bright galaxy, uh, you know, nearby, and this was a really um for us, it was really a transformative moment because we knew you know the physics is telling us that this this should happen we should be able to detect these events um but we had not made a detection like this ever y- yet, so this was the the very first, and so it's very uh exciting and there was a lot of excitement around it in two thousand and seventeen, and I think that that also translated into. A lot of excitement even now where, you know, we are actively pursuing and attempting to make new discoveries. So uh, the last slide that I have is just a few words saying that uh, this was uh, really uh, exciting to be able to participate in the discovery of um, the very first detection of a neutron star neutron star merger. it's a great start for this program in the sense that uh, we now know that we can do this. We just, we just have to do it again and many, many, many times. So that's what we are pursuing right now. The challenge is to accumulate a large sample and uh, make this often enough and precisely enough so that we can finally tell, you know, okay, if it's not a duck, what it is, right? Thank you very much. I hope you all enjoyed those presentations as much as I did. So
0: now's the time where we have our group discussion and I have agreed to moderate and I will let speakers know when they have the floor and when they do not. Would anybody like to start us off with a question or comment?
3: Hello, regarding the multi-messenger slide, has any work been done with using radio
2: astronomy as well as optical and the gravity waves? Thank you. Uh, yes, so um, it's multi-messenger and it's also multi-wavelength activity. I, in my presentation I focused only on the optical signatures, but we also see and we expect to see um, emission in other wavelengths and radio astronomers were able to see the signal from that particular event. That signal came in late, so I keep saying the radio astronomers were late to the party Um, but they were also the last ones to leave the party. Uh, the emission from that event was bright in the optical bands that we can detect with our camera for two weeks, but they were detectable for almost a year in radio wavelengths. So that was very, uh, powerful in providing information about it.
0: A question, what observations led to the idea that there is dark matter? So
1: historically, the first one was Vera Rubin, uh, British. Uh, I think it should know American astronomer B- Vera Rubin. Um, one of the great slides of the Nobel Prize Committee not giving it to women, who uh, detected that, as you usually, as you w- what you would ha- if you would look at the velocity of all the planets, it would follow a very strict one over R squared law. It's just you know, just basic gravity. And you expect the same everywhere, and everyone's like, yeah, whatever, it's just happening, but she noticed it's straight, mm-hmm. straight up. And so for a long time, people were like, well, this is just astronomers, you know, they're like pie times, you know. But then in particular in 1998 and 1997, they did a very, the first precise measurement of this last surface of last kata in the early universe. And there was reason to, bar- to doubt in systematics. Astronomy is very difficult because your lab is far away, right? And this was really nailing it down and really driving it home. And like, there's no way you can explain this. And this in the same year or same two years where dark energy happened. And then essentially, as I mentioned, we went from we understand it all to we don't know nothing. Right?
3: Thank you, friends. As someone who got a B in physics at Michigan, I feel very lucky to have two physics professor friends to ask such questions to. Um, Marcelli and I were just chatting about, yeah, you paid attention over there <laughs> about observables and how um that concept is it, new to me and interesting in these types of discoveries um And I know this gentleman mentioned radio radio um radio period at the end. okay, are there other potential observables or Things that you can kind of imagine happening in your lifetime that would put this work even farther forward. I know a lot has happened recently and in a short amount of time. Whether it's you know technology getting a lot better or types of things that you can observe that would really accelerate this work.
2: Thank you for this question. This, um, yeah, I, I'm already going places here in my mind with this one. So. In the case of traditional astronomy, we obviously started with um, wavelengths that that our eyes are sensitive to, right? Then later we built equipment that allowed us to um, see further away and focus it more and so on, and then much, much later, we learned how to build detectors that would allow us to see in different bands that our eyes are naturally not you know suitable for for example radio bands or x-ray bands and so on every time that we made uh progress in these um you know technological advancements we Open what people call a new window you know into the universe we saw new things we learned about new structures new classes of objects that we had never seen before with gravitational waves is something similar we knew via the theory as long as the general relativity from Einstein works we know that gravitational waves have to be there uh, and now that we can detect them we are able to see for example that there are you know, black holes of different masses and many neutron stars and, 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 and details about their physics and so on. Now, the LIGO detectors, they are sensitive in within a band as well. So you can imagine that in the future we are going to have other gravitational wave detectors that will be sensitive to gravitational waves in different frequencies. And I don't know what that will bring, but th- this will be awesome. So I'm looking forward to that. Yes, thank you. Uh, this was a question that was raised on our table um, and that is this research is so fascinating and such but how do we apply this knowledge in our daily lives? How, what can we benefit from it from our, in our daily lives?
1: Not at all, <laughs> <laughs> but you could have asked the same question a hundred years ago and say so, great you have this thing called transistor who gives a crap? you know, and now our economy is running off it, you know. First time Wilhelm Röntgen put his hand, actually his wife's hand, dude wasn't a good husband, beneath, you know, beneath uh, uh, the radiating pechblende in German and and, and the uh, the photo plate. He's like, whatever, right? Just make a picture of my wife's hand, the bones of it, and today it's fundamental. We are culture people. It's not always about... I was just the other day in the Henry Ford Museum. You go there and like none of us goes there. If not, you wouldn't be here. So now I'm uh, preaching to the choir. If we go to the Henry Ford, to the Smithsonian, we look at the first plane and we look 50 years later, moon landing, we're like, wow, what happened the last 20 years? Those things became a bit thinner, you know? It's not about what we can do with it right now. It's about how we learn more and the application will follow we do not care where we came from, where we go to. Then we would still live in caves. To be honest.
0: <laughs> Thank you for a wonderful presentations. Um, I'm wondering so huge uh, expanse, you know, in terms of where you can identify using LIGO, what part of the sky? It looked like you know 400 square degrees or so of sky, um, and I'm guessing that you must have some way to identify the optical transient. Uh, in terms of knowing that you know how it, that it fits the neutron star collision model, um, how how long do you have to do that with all of that space? And will like Lisa and other gravitational detectors help narrow that down a little bit?
2: The analogy is like the needle in the haystack, right? So we have in the sky many bright objects, and we want to find the one bright object of interest uh, in in that. So um, our analysis pipeline, it takes into consideration what we know of the physics, that we expect it to be this bright or this color and so on. So we take that into consideration. We also know that there's a lot of uncertainty on those models, so we tend to be more inclusive you know so we better err on the side of caution and include more things that later we reject than uh reject completely you know and and throw away uh you know the the signal and 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 this is a challenge with gw 170817 we were very lucky because that event was very close to us very well localized in the sky so it was relatively easy quote-unquote right to uh to get there but I- even in that context we had about uh, 1300 objects to uh, reject you know and uh, it's it's not trivial with more detectors so lisa and so on those are space missions that will be detecting on different frequencies going back to uh, you know the question over there um but Ground-based observatories, we are expecting them also to get better, and we are expecting to have a network with more of those detectors as well relatively soon, you know within the next decade. That includes a detector in Japan that's been built, and some plans as well for a future detector uh, similar to LIGO in, in India. With those detectors, then the localization vision becomes smaller, then our jobs will become much easier, but it will take a few years before we get there. I'm looking
0: at this and I'm going, one of the things that is critical in our current society is finding sources of power. We are killing our planet. Uh, electrical is, is a good response, but not the end response. Is
2: anyone studying dark energy as a source of power for our use on our earth? No, I think um, right now we don't know what it is and more than that we know that dark energy is something that is relevant in the cosmic scales between our galaxies we don't know even you know if you even if you were able to devise a way to harvest that energy out of you know the empty space um yeah no, I, I think we are not. We are not go, going there, you know. So uh, those challenges, uh, there are big challenges for all of us. Um, I think they will be better addressed with o- other approaches. I think that here, in terms, again, it, maybe a, a, at some point in a few decades from now, somebody will say like, "Oh, that person told me, and uh, she was totally wrong." But uh, the way I see it right now, we are in a quest of understanding of the fundamental nature of the universe we live in. It is very true that with only five percent of knowledge, you know, that we have right now of that, you know, l- tiny piece of the chart. We already transformed our world in a you know incredible way. So who knows what will happen when we learn about what dark energy really is. But right now I don't think that you know practical applications like that are not on, on, on the menu. Hi. Um,
0: I'm wondering since the James Webb space telescope has been launched and more recently the Euclid, which I guess focuses more on the infrared spectrum, have either of these telescopes done anything to advance your fields or have they created more questions than answers?
2: So James Webb, just for, for for context. So James Webb is a space telescope, and Euclid also is a space a space mission aiming to um, survey the co- the cosmos, you know, from space. So that means that um, because they don't have the atmosphere to deal with, um, they can get um, very precise measurements of shapes of objects, and also they can have sensitivity to to wavelengths. Closer to infrared that are, uh, allow us to see further out. So in our field, the way we see these uh, multiple surveys is as complementary, you know, data set. So they are going to see, in some cases, they are going to see the same objects, the same sky. In other cases, they are going to see complementary areas of the sky, but in different bands and so on, and form a data set that's more com- complex and rich, right? In the case of the James Webb, the field of view is very small. So there, specifically for the science that I discussed here today, um, the main way that I see that being, you know, a killer project is um, to study in detail the sources that we find in the future. Because once you have scanned, you know, it, something that has a narrow field of view, it's not good to scan a large area. But once you have scanned a large area somewhere from the ground and identified it as like, oh, this is the one, let's go for it, that is a very good instrument to get detailed information and about the, you know, what the physical processes that are happening in them.
0: Yes, um, my question is on dark matter. Um, I believe that neutrinos were once thought to be massless
3: and are not quite massless. Is there any possibility there are enough of them to account for dark matter?
1: Excellent question. Um, unfortunately, not. So we do not know the mass of the neutrino, but we ha- we know a l- upper limit. So we know how like maximum mass. Actually, the, the fact that neutrinos have masses it all started in the same mind I'm working right. So, but what happens? Neutrino travel at the speed of light and this type of cosmological structures that we see in Marcellus' research and the way dark matter seeded these superclusters and galactic structures, if dark matter would be with the speed of light, it would sort of draw them out and wash them out like you know, like a wave across the sand washing out the structure. So we know it's not neutrinos. Actually, one crucial property of dark matter is that it's not moving with the speed of light.
0: This is just a, a short comment, but in reply to the question about Uh, or the comment earlier about the practical applications of it. I just wanted to kind of reinforce the amazingness of using gravitational waves to detect things that are happening. Like we all know, you know, we're seeing things, electromagnetic radiation with our eyes and we can hear things. This is a completely new sense of detection in the universe that humans have just developed in the past 10 years. To detect vibrations in the space-time continuum, to see things, is amazing and remarkable. Um, and so I just want to say, like, th- this is astounding. But but um, my, my just to kind of turn it into a question, I, I was unclear how exactly, what ways of using the gravitational waves help us see and detect dark energy?
2: Okay. So I think I identified two pieces of your question, right? So on one side, I think the research we do is not inherently motivated by solving a practical problem. It's really motivated by um, fulfilling our curiosity as human beings, right? Now, On the path to that goal, we require and we do develop new technologies, new things. And um, one example that I uh, like to use is like we all have, you know, amazing little cameras in our pockets right now. And the technology to make them so good, so small and so cheap, you know, in part has to do with developments that were made for astronomy in, in, you know, in the early days. So, so there's that, right, there's that component. And gravitational waves in particular, I think that are uh, a new area where, again, new technology had to be developed. The specifics of how that will Change applications and so on. For example, in laser technology, computing technology, and so on, are some of those are already in place, and um, others I think we have not yet seen what shape and form that will take, right? But that is not the key motivation. It's not, you know, at least at least for me or, or for us when we are thinking of like, okay, we are, we we want to do this project and we want to solve this problem, the motivation is the science, not so much that um, you know, that component. Not that that component is not there, but it's not um, the key driver of the decision-making process.
0: Thank you again so much for your talk, it was great. Um, so just like matter we can't see, like there are, it takes many states, solid liquid gas, plasma, uh, and energy that we can't see, electrical light, heat and so forth uh, are there reasons to believe that dark matter and dark energy take on different forms
1: yes i talk about dark matter so the thing is of course when we saw like something is happening differently we expect the first thought was space rocks they're just rocks in space we don't see and then they're like maybe planets we don't see but at the end what we did we have a full list of all possible astronomical objects and then particle physics objects and possible forces and neutrinos were long on the list and we checked if it makes sense. You know what? Sir C- Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of, J- of James Bond, no, it's the other guy, um, Sherlock Holmes said in his books, he let Sherlock Holmes say, "What? when you're looking for an explanation and you explain, you exclude all the possibilities, whatever remains must be the truth. So we didn't jump to a conclusion like, hey, they, they, I need to write a grand proposal, let's call it dark matter. This was a huge I mean, the first time dark matter was written, actually in German, in a, in a paper written by uh, Zwicky back then in Caltech, but in German, Dunkle Materie, was a hundred years ago. And this paper has been cited like five times to the 1960s, and, and, and since the 90s goes up like crazy. It took 50, 60 years to exclude all this simple explanation. And this is why it's so hard to look for it because the low-hanging fruits are unfortunately gone, and we haven't found it. And so we know now it's something that is not known to man, for sure.
3: Again, on dark matter. Dark matter does not interact with anything except through gravity. And yet, and it's spread throughout the universe, why has it not gravitationally coalesced into itself and formed one giant black hole in the past 13 billion years.
1: Good question. Um, so first, not everything that gravitation interacts coalesces into a black hole because in that case, all the matter would be in one black hole. So there's dark matter has like any anything else an escape velocity. If it's fast enough, it's not going to 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 bind. And actually, its escape velocity is slower than for a, for a macroscopic object. Because it's lighter, it can escape faster, right? Um, We actually, some of our dark matter searches are based on the idea that dark matter is coalescing a little bit, for example, in neutrino telescopes, we're looking for particular signatures of dark matter in neutrinos coming from the sun, because we would expect slightly more dark matter sitting in the sun than in Earth. So it's a correct thought, and we consider this, but this escape velocity.
0: So, thanks. Uh, actually, I think I have a question. So it's going to be two questions, because um, in regard to dark matter, do uh, do we hypothesize that, that dark matter interacts with space time the same as visible matter? And then in regard to um, to uh, ob- observation, I mean, I've sat behind a poll at, at Fenway Park. I mean, do we feel Earth is a decent place to try to, you know, search from or we wish we could be over in like in the box seats over there
2: we cannot choose our vantage point right so we have to do uh, the best we can Um, i have to say that compared to other galaxies we've seen out there um we're in a fairly good spot you know so many other galaxies have you know very active supermassive black holes in the center. We do have a supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy, but it's quite to some extent. So it doesn't affect our observations so much. Otherwise, you know, it, it would be more difficult in other ways. So um, I feel like most of the time, I don't think about that. We think about like, okay, how can we, um, for us, the jargon is like foregrounds, right? So whatever is the... F- Stuff that's between us and the signal that we want to get from out there. How can we um, handle it the best we can? And we actually have improved a lot in that direction uh, in the you know last few decades. But overall, I think our seats are okay.
1: And then probably last comment about dark matter and space time. I love it when it sounds like Star Trek, right away. Um, (laughs) So one of the primary ways we can see dark matter in the present universe is via something called gravitational lensing. And so we know dark matter follows space, time, and general relativity. Yes, it does interact with it.
0: Thank you so much. Have a good evening, everyone.